It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Sunday, January 21st, 2024. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. The Southwest border and the Houthi rebels in Yemen dominated discussion at the White House this week as the president himself lowered expectations in the Middle East. Critics are saying, again, this is a watered-down version of them being designated, sort of the minimal of what the White House can do just to look like it's doing something uh, related to these Houthis. And it's on to New Hampshire as the Republican effort to pick a presidential nominee continues in a state where GOP voters went for Trump as the nominee in the last two presidential elections. We like those independent candidates, those kind of a little bit maverick. People are going to shake things up in Washington. And our independent voters, our undeclared voters, are 40% of the electorate. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. A fight between federal border patrol agents and the state of Texas escalated this past week. Texas took over a park near Eagle Pass along the border. The Justice Department asked the Supreme Court to demand border agents have access to the park. And that filing came after a migrant and her two children drowned in the Rio Grande River. The White House said Texas had refused to grant agents access to that particular area of the border. And Fox's Jackie Heinrich pressed White House spokeswoman Karine Jean-Pierre on why they linked the drownings to agent access to the park. As the DOJ filing said, there was an ongoing emergency situation that Border Patrol was blocked from accessing. There were other migrants in in the water as well. The White House statement says that Texas officials blocked U.S. Border Patrol from attempting to provide emergency assistance to there were other there were other migrants in the water. Then why as wasn't well. that included in the there statement? Were other migrants in the water. That, that, that that's what you were referring to. Also this week, the Secretary of Defense went home from the hospital. He oversaw U.S. coalition strikes against Houthi rebels in Yemen from Walter Reed Medical Center. But after he went to the hospital earlier this month, no one at the White House knew. This week, the Houthi attacks on ships in the Red Sea continued, and the U.S. struck Houthi sites in Yemen again. President Biden was asked if U.S. retaliation is working. When you say working, are they stopping the Houthis? No. Are they going to continue? Yes. On top of that, the Houthis, which had been taken off the list of foreign terrorist organizations back when President Biden took office, have been put back on a list, recognizing the group as specially designated global terrorists. It's not a redesignation as a foreign terrorist organization. It's a lesser designation that's actually uh, saying they're a terrorist group, they're bad people, uh, but it's easier to remove them from that list. Edward Lawrence is the Fox Business Network's White House correspondent. NSC spokesperson John Kirby has been saying or was saying this week is that if the Houthis change their behavior, they will then be removed off of that list. Now, he's not calling that a bargaining chip per se, but that is, in fact, what they have said here at the White House. So, you know, it's very interesting uh, as the early part of this week was dominated by this you know the houthis attacking what more than at least 33 times for ships in the red sea uh they were removed uh, as a terrorist organization the moment when president biden came into office three years ago and now as you said that designation or a similar designation is back on but one that's easier to remove so you've got critics saying this is just the watered down version of it uh because the nsc the national security advisor jake sullivan uh, says that there's 
going to be large carve-outs for humanitarian aid, things like fuel, medicine, and food, yeah. to get into Yemen. And that is what is allowed, or, or that this lesser designation of a terrorist organization uh, allows the U.S. government to do. So critics are saying this is watered down. The administration is saying this is sort of a, a reach-out to say, hey, Houthis, stop attacking, uh, and then we can remove you off this list. I was reading that the State Department said they have to be account held accountable, but it can't be at the expense of Yemeni civilians. So there's this 30-day implementation period, and the State Department says, well, we're going to conduct robust outreach to stakeholders, aid providers, and yes. partners who are crucial to facilitating humanitarian assistance. This sounds like they're trying to walk a very fine line here, right, of holding them to account, but also, um, you know, not harming civilians in the way. But at the same time, Secretary Blinken has said... Right. This is because of support from Iran. So there's a yeah, lot of it, moving parts here. Yeah. And this is the White House saying that, look, we have done something. This look what we're doing on this. But that 30 days the, the, from the White House, ah. uh, they're telling us that it gives them the opportunity to reach out to those humanitarian aid groups and find out where they need to put exemptions to this, to the things that are banned going into Yemen. Uh, so it, it does certainly, the critics are saying, again, this is a watered down version of them being designated, sort of the minimal of what the White House can do just to look like it's doing something uh, related to these Houthis. Now, again, we've seen strikes, though, that, that have been ramped up. The response has ramped up. And for the first time, the administration is now preemptively striking the Houthis. So they are saying, as several instances mm. Uh, this week, they're saying that the Houthis, they saw them launching or, or getting ready to launch missiles. They were loading them into position and the U.S. preemptively struck those positions. That is an escalation from the U.S. side uh, and a message sent from the U.S. side. And I have talked with uh, some retired uh, military commanders who are saying that's exactly what the U.S. should have been doing months ago on November 19th when the ah. first attack happened from the Houthis. Ed, we'd been talking earlier about the Secretary of Defense. He'd been hospitalized earlier this month, and the White House didn't know. Um, there'd been questions about if he would be fired or if he'd resign over this. But from Walter Reed, he was overseeing U.S. strikes against the Houthis. He's now at home as of this week. Has this issue of his, like, calmed down, even as things are only ramping up with the Houthis? Right. And this issue has not gone away. This is a concern for a number of congressional lawmakers who are saying, you know, how can you have the you know, secretary of defense missing basically for four days, three to four days uh, between yeah. the time, you know, the president was alerted that he was actually to the hospital and the time they actually, you know, got in touch with him. Um, <clears throat> the president has spoken to the secretary of defense uh, several times now since uh, this has all happened. Uh, he said the president says he has full confidence in Secretary Austin. Uh, so from the White House, this is case closed. But if you ask uh, House Speaker Mike Johnson, he's saying, well, no, wait a minute. This is a serious issue because you can't have a critical cabinet member going missing for several days in a time uh, when the U.S. is being attacked, basically, in the Red Sea. Speaking of uh, Speaker Johnson and congressional leaders, the president met with them Wednesday. Um, it seemed the conversation seemed to be focused on how to get the supplemental passed regarding Ukraine funding and Israel aid funding and, and um, Indo-Pacific uh, related funding, additional funding, right, outside of appropriations, outside of regular budgetary matters. Um, but he, Speaker Johnson said outside the White House, if you want Ukraine money, you have to address our border first. It sounds like uh, Leader Schumer was saying that the president is open to talking about some items having to do with the border. Do we, do we have any sense of what he's open to? 
so it's very interesting. The president this week came out and, and basically said that he sees no issues. He sees no problems, uh, no holdups. Um, you know, and then in the next breath, the president says that he's vast support on Ukraine aid. Uh, the question is if a small minority group holds it up and that holding it up is what you're talking about, that border funding. Uh, and you said it. Mike Johnson came out in front of the West Wing after the meeting with the president and said uh, that he wants to see substantive uh, policy change. Uh, and they documented for the president 64 instances where the president took ex- executive action uh, or his agencies took action to create what the House Speaker is saying is a current catastrophe on the border for national security. Uh, so they ha- they came in prepared from the House side, the, the House Speaker Mike Johnson. From the president's side, he's saying, well, there were other people in the room for this meeting and Ukraine was brought up and he's satisfied. We haven't heard what changes the White House is willing to make. We haven't heard exactly where the president's willing to move. And, you know, he spoke uh, on Wednesday, on Thursday, um, when he was going to North Carolina, and he did not indicate that there was any changes he was going to make and that there was consensus that something was going to be to happen. Now, the House Speaker did uh, did agree with the, the other folks in the room that there's a sense of urgency to money from Ukraine. But he also said there's a sense of urgency about securing our national border. So it is it, it seems like there's still a stalemate at this area, but uh, both sides are still talking. Speaking of the border, Ed, there's been this dust up in Texas over Shelby Park, this area that was taken over by the state of Texas along the border, after which a mother and her two children drowned in the river. Well, the White House issued a statement linking those two things together, that federal Border Patrol agents didn't have access to this land, but it turned out the migrants had sadly drowned before the agents were even notified about them. There's been some backlash here over all this and how the White House has handled it. So what I can talk about with this is uh, the White House, the charge that the White House sort of muddled together that Texas is responsible for the deaths of the drowning deaths of those migrants. Uh, the White House released a statement uh, basically saying that there was an emergency situation and migrants drowned. Uh, didn't quite specify the emergency situation. The migrants drowned an hour before the response what was going to be there. The Mexican authorities did not alert the U.S. Uh, until after the migrants had already passed away. So the White House sort of muddled that together. Some news organizations went forward with that information and then had to issue a correction afterwards. The White House, again, still not backing off, saying that there was an emergency situation, they needed access, uh, and that also migrants had drowned. Uh, but you know, if you look at it, Texas wasn't directly responsible for the migrants drowning because they blocked anyone from getting in. Those migrants drowned long before anybody tried to go uh, towards the Rio Grande River. But there's still this fight, this legal fight over whether or not a, a state can block, I guess, federal agents from this area of, of land to do their job as Border Patrol agents, right? The Texas Attorney General is saying, we have every right to do this. This is our state. And they've, they've even started arresting migrants along the border under state rule. Right. And what Texas is is digging in uh, related to this. And they did pass that law. The uh, administration is extremely upset with the fact that they have now deputized basically local law enforcement with being able to arrest somebody who is in this country illegally. Uh, The federal government believes that is their responsibility. And then you have critics on the other side saying the federal government is not doing that uh, as we see, what, 7.1 million uh, migrants illegally crossing the border since President Biden came into office. Uh, So this 
this is an ongoing situation. It's a battle back and forth. It's playing out in the courts now, but it's also playing out in real time. And we've seen the pictures uh, from the border of people crossing. We've seen the mayors uh, that are coming to this, the White House. Uh, or we're seeing the mayors that came to the White House on Friday to ask, in part, for more money and more help with the migrant situation. And that is an issue that is transcending now the United States in terms of economics, uh, in terms of uh, physical security, in terms of national security. Fox Business Network's White House correspondent, Edward Lawrence, thanks so much for joining. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Thanks, Jessica. I appreciate it. This past week, former President Trump won the Iowa caucus by roughly 30 points. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis came in second with about 21 percent of the vote. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, even though she came in third, two points behind DeSantis, insisted that it's a two-person race now between her and Trump. But polls out of New Hampshire ahead of Tuesday's primary show Trump ahead by double digits. He told Fox's Sean Hannity that Haley has no shot and couldn't handle the presidency. You know, she has one obsolete poll that she likes. She's about two months old, where she was leading Biden. Well, that those days are gone. She's not leading Biden anymore. Haley said at a town hall, if she has no shot, then why is the former president spending so much time going after her? She also told Fox News. You know, just because Trump said something doesn't make it true. He, get, he had a temper tantrum at a rally. But what's he saying? He's saying that I was never for the border. I was the governor that passed the toughest illegal immigration law in the country. Now, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis says the reports were wrong. He wasn't skipping New Hampshire, just spending time in South Carolina as well as New Hampshire, where he may be polling in single digits. But he says Haley is not doing as well as she claims. She, she got media attention, then she got scrutiny. Uh, she cannot beat Donald Trump in New Hampshire, and she definitely can't beat him in her home state of South Carolina. While Iowa's vote may have been driven in part by evangelical voters, New Hampshire's voters are driven by those who do not ascribe to a party, nearly 40 percent. Politics is our state sport. So people are very, very uh, in tune with the issues. They study them. And we take this primary very seriously. New Hampshire Republican Party Chair Chris Ager. What people look are looking at now, what I'm hearing is the the open southern border is very, very important, even though we don't have the the mass influx of immigrants. Uh, there are some coming across the northern border now. It's a large increase. But even our large increase at the northern border is is minuscule compared to the southern border. Uh, that's taken on a, a very big role. And part of the reason is the fentanyl overdoses yeah. that are happening here are higher than the, the national average. And that's all traced back to the southern border. Also, the cost of of taking care of these folks who are walking across the border. Uh, you know, people are concerned about the $34 trillion debt. And then when you look at you know, wow, we're putting people in hotels, we're building facilities, um, giving them free cell phones. You know, we don't do that for our own citizens. And so it seems unfair, especially to legal immigrants, um, what's happening. And also the concern over the uh, the security. Um, yeah. Well, uh, only a, a terrorist watch list uh, have been caught. How many have not been caught? And so the border is, I think, taking a bigger issue than a lot of people might have expected. You know, the economy is always number one. But right now, the border may be surpassing that as the top issue. 
Wow. Who have independent New Hampshire voters historically gone for, like on the Republican side? I know in 2016, after Iowa and uh, Iowa voters went for Ted Cruz with their, you know, evangelical voters uh, taking the lead there. New Hampshire went for, for former President Trump, right, in 2016. What about before right. that? Who, who have New Hampshire voters sort of uh, uh, given us? Yeah. So if you just look at the last three presidential uh, contested elections, you know, we talked about uh, 2016 uh, in, in 20. Uh, 12 and in, in 2008, Iowa picked Rick Santorum and Mike Huckabee. And in New Hampshire, we picked the eventual nominee, Mitt Romney and, and John McCain. Mm. And so I think New Hampshire is is very has a very broad spectrum of voters. And, you know, there is a, a very strong independent streak here. Some people call it a libertarian streak. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in New Hampshire, hey, we take care of our own business. You know, everybody should take care of their own their own and we like those independent candidates, those kind of a little bit maverick. People are going to shake things up in Washington. And our independent voters, our undeclared voters, are 40% of the electorate. They can right. pick either ballot. Democrats are 30%, Republicans 30%. And so in New Hampshire, you, have, you can't just appeal to the base only. You have to p- appeal to a broad spectrum of voters, which I believe is why we do a good job at picking the eventual nominees. What what do you think it is about Nikki Haley that's making her more competitive in New Hampshire with former President Trump, even then in her home state of South Carolina? What is the independentness, I guess, of Nikki Haley that's resonating? So a part of it is she's not she's not the incumbent, which President Trump. A lot of people look at him as essentially the incumbent uh, yeah. president, and Governor DeSantis uh, is is seen as very similar to President Trump. You know, kind mm. of almost like President Trump policies without the tweets. Um, <laughs> and Nikki Haley's different. And so she's different in respect that that she was United Nations ambassador. And she's been kind of connecting with people as, hey, I'm an accountant. You know, we need to fix the finances in Washington, which mm. in New Hampshire uh, really resonates since we have no income tax, uh, no broad-based income tax or sales tax. And so I believe that element's resonating. And we also can't uh, discount the fact that uh, some people now are seeing her as the alternative to uh, President Trump. And so she's gravitating, you know, those voters are gravitating towards her um, to try to make that one-on-one matchup, which some people have been advocating for. I have a, a question. Why do you think Governor DeSantis didn't, like, sort of land in New Hampshire? Was it a particular issue or would DeSantis actually be beating Nikki Haley in New Hampshire among Republicans if Trump weren't running? Well, I I'm pretty perplexed about the polling for Governor DeSantis. We don't know what the vote's going to be next Tuesday. Um, Surprises have happened. But but the polling um, is very perplexing to me because Governor DeSantis came up in April as our our Amos Tuck annual Republican Party dinner speaker. And he resonated with people very well. We, we, it was the largest fundraiser in the history of the state. Uh, we had a packed room, and he worked the room retail. Uh, and I was with him essentially the whole time. And I was like, wow, he, he's better than the media has portrayed. Hmm. I think what happened with him was he was the alternative to Donald Trump early. And when he was that alternative early, both the Trump campaign saw him as the chief rival. The media kind of said, hey, he's he's the alternative. 
And some of the left media just went after him because they were worried he could beat this Biden. And then the other Republican candidates went after him and the Democrats went after him. So he was kind of that one guy that everybody was attacking early. And I think it was it's very difficult to overcome that. President Trump did it. Uh, he has that yeah. special, you know, he's a one of a kind um, <laughs> with his branding. And, and boy, you know, we may never see another one like him. Uh, but I think yeah. Governor Santos was the target from all directions. Trump, other Republicans, media, Democrats. And it was it was just tough to overcome. Uh, we'll see what happens Tuesday, though. He was here last night. He's going to be here again tomorrow. And so he has not abandoned New Hampshire, as some of the report uh, headlines say. But uh, he's he's done as many events here recently as uh, either President Trump or Nikki Haley. Yeah. Um, tell me about that. What do you make of these reports? Um, there, there's one that the DeSantis campaign is actually pushing around. I think it's an NBC report of Nikki Haley sort of seemingly laying low, not holding these open town halls like she had been and taking those questions. You know, does that is that going to hurt her heading into Tuesday? Well, I I um, campaigns decide what they're going to do based on, on what they think is best for them. Um, I thought uh, when Governor Haley, Governor Ambassador Nikki Haley dropped mm -hmm. out of the debate, I I was stunned because when you're trying to catch up and President Trump in a lot of polls is double digits ahead of you, yeah. boy, why not get on local TV, you and Ron DeSantis, and, and show what you got? I mean, almost everybody in the state would have watched that debate. And so when she didn't, a lot of people scratched their heads and say, well, what's happening here? And then not taking questions. So wait a minute. It, that's it's it's just not what we're expecting. Well, and it, it doesn't right even approach, seem very like but... much like her. Like she she had seemed so so open, right? Like she'd hold, oh, she'd yeah. hold town yeah. halls for very lengthy periods of time and sure. answer lots of questions. It it does seem like some sort of strange reversal. Yeah, it could be a calculation um, from the campaign, and you know we don't second guess campaigns. They do what they think is right. Uh, but it, it was a surprise to a lot of people, and uh, we're not sure what the calculation was into that. But um, you know, it's it's. Um, we'll see next Tuesday. About, yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe about eight or nine o'clock, we'll probably have a really good indication of what's going on. Now, on Thursday, Nikki Haley did take questions from voters at two town hall events and held multiple events Friday with plans to hold more throughout the weekend. Earlier in the week, Haley had been taken off the trail for a bit after her father was hospitalized in South Carolina, though she said Thursday he was doing well. Now, Chris, tell us, who can vote in New Hampshire's primary? Because no party voters can vote in the Republican primary, but registered Democratic voters cannot. That's correct. Okay. So in early October was the cutoff to switch parties. So if you're a Republican or Democrat... Um, you're locked in. Or independent. You could, you're locked in, I think it was October 7th, which was a week before filing period started. Okay. But 30% of our electorate are registered Democrats, 30% Republican, and 40%, that plurality, are undeclared. So they can walk into the voting booth uh, and pick either Republican or Democrat ballot. And that's the biggest block. And so you can't ignore that. So in New Hampshire, you can't run far to the right to pick up that you know staunch republican low turnout um intense voter you have to appeal to a broad spectrum of voters which i think is why we actually pick you know the eventual nominees here because they're more representative of the overall republican uh, voters 
So um, I, I think it served us well. We've been doing it for over 40 years this way. And a lot of people attribute the fact that Donald Trump won here in 26 to the fact that independent voters could vote in a Republican primary. So, you know, this year people are saying, well, maybe it'll help Nikki Haley. Well, 2016, it very well may have been the reason Donald Trump won our primary. Interesting. Okay, just a couple more for you. Um, uh, Nikki Haley's insisting on looking at the numbers, right? She's pointing out that historically um, Trump's New Hampshire poll numbers aren't good enough, she says, to win. And she's comparing him to other incumbents. She calls him a quasi-incumbent in this case, who faced, you know, stronger intra-party challenges, Lyndon Johnson, Ford, George H.W. Bush. And she then points to poll numbers showing in a matchup between her and Biden that she does the best as opposed to DeSantis or Trump. Do you think pointing out numbers like this is swaying anyone, um, even someone whose sole focus is on getting Biden out of office? Does this work? I think the only thing that, that could resonate with people is, you know, what's the matchup with Biden? Okay. Early on, people were saying, hey, you know, President Trump's going to have a difficult time. You know, we need an alternative. But the polling suggests that Biden is so unpopular, you know, we could get a mannequin, put a wig on it and some lipstick, and they would beat Joe Biden. That's how bad he is. So, you know, the argument's gone away uh, of somewhat of, you know, only an alternative can beat Joe Biden. Um, but that's the only argument, I think, with numbers that'll work, you know, is if you could show that I'm a better opportunity. I, you have a better opportunity to beat Joe Biden with me than an, another candidate, because right now I can tell you, Republican voters, um, our number one priority is Joe Biden has to go. He's bad for the country. And all of our candidates, all of them are superior to Joe Biden. So uh, I think that's the overriding, you know, motivation. Yeah. But we do have a lot of Trump uh, supporters who are very passionate and, you know, they love President Trump and they're going to vote for him come hell or high water. Um, some of them may be a little bit less inclined to vote um, otherwise. Uh, but I, I think overall, the Republican voters in the state want a win next November. OK, finally, another poll came out this past week. You just sort of referenced it, giving the president a 33 percent approval rating. Um I, I think it's safe to say that these are these are sufficiently low polling numbers to, I guess, uh, rattle anyone. How's Dean Phillips doing? He's holding a lot of events, right? Uh, do, does he? Well, well I, I know that's the the other party, but I imagine you're you're watching a little bit of that, especially given the oh, drama sure. over Biden skipping New Hampshire and you know not not allowing, I guess, New Hampshire to go second for the Democrats. Right. Well, it, it's very hypocritical that what the Democratic Party is doing. They eliminated New Hampshire as first in their rules because Joe Biden asked them to. Then when they, Dean Phillips came in there, said, wait a minute, we could be embarrassed. Now the president is campaigning via proxy. He's sending up his cabinet secretaries, which is really on the hairy edge of hatch violations. Um, so they're coming up mm. essentially campaigning for him, saying they're coming up talking about their, their secretariat, which you know, people here aren't stupid. It's like, come on, you're up here campaigning for Biden um, without saying it directly. And so we don't want you to be first. We're not going to be on the ballot, but we're spending money, time and effort to mount a write-in campaign. It's kind of like uh, political Stockholm syndrome. We're smacking you in the face, um, ignoring you, snubbing you. Oh, but now we want your vote on a write-in. And so I'm not sure how well that's going to work. Dean Phillips has been campaigning. He's been doing town halls. He's been doing some television advertising and mailing. 
so he is campaigning, but the Democratic infrastructure is trying to shut him down uh, completely. Uh, whereas Republicans, we welcome everyone. So uh, fascinating to see. I'd love to see Dean Phillips do well. But um, at the end of the day, it looks like it's going to be Joe Biden or his replacement that they'll pick at the at the convention, mm. um, you know, against, you know, our nominee who's picked via an open primary. Oh. New Hampshire Republican Party chair Chris Ager, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Thank you. That'll do it for this edition of the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Tomorrow, House Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Michael McCall discusses his weekend trip to the southern border and the ongoing debate over sending more aid to Ukraine and Israel. Plus, we take a look at how the federal government's taking steps to mandate anti-impaired driving technology in new cars. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Thanks for listening to the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.